Our scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Uh, a, a friend of mine has a saying, he says, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Um, because what he means by that is it takes time to learn to do things, right? And so if you've only done something once, how good do you think you're going to be at it? It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard, right? And as we've said before, we want to be the kind of church that uh, builds up and raises up uh, young ministers-to-be and allow them to exercise their gifts, tell them when they have uh, done well, and critique them when they've not done so well, okay? Um, Joe Ragsdale's a, a pastoral intern. This is only the second time in his life, right, in his life that he's preached, Okay, and so as Josh is doing right here, see how he's leaning up on the pew, very interested in what Joe is about to say. The only thing would be better is if he had a pad and paper in his hand. Okay, so if you have a pad and paper, get it out. Look at how Josh is sitting, lean up and uh, take good notes. And even if Joe is not funny, which he is very funny. Now, he's not as funny as me, but he's pretty funny. Um Laugh at, at, at what he says and all of that, okay? At one point uh, in, in his life, Drew was not a very good preacher. I know it's hard to believe, yes, he was not born amazing or something, right? I mean, it is a skill, it's a craft, and it took Drew time. Uh, and he continues to get better, and we're grateful for that, right? Um, it, it's, it's no different from, from Joe. It's going to take Joe time. But we want to be the kind of place who, not just for Joe, but for any others, say, please come and practice, and we want to help you, right? Um, because everybody's got to start somewhere. Uh, and so welcome Joe, encourage Joe, please, not just during his sermon, but afterward, and, uh, and be blessed. So, Joe. Thank you for the disclaimer, Jonathan. Uh, we don't really clap here, so that's, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, as Jonathan said, my name is Joe Ragsdale. I'm an intern here. 
if you guys don't know me, uh, a lot of my main responsibilities have to do with technology and communications. So I kind of run the app and the website and all that. And part of that, as Jonathan said, is a pastoral intent. You know, they want me to learn to preach. And a lot of that's going to happen uh, primarily through the Southwest Church Plant. So I'm going to give a plug for that right now because I think that's what you're supposed to do when you're up here. So uh, we launched January 24th at the Howard Johnson Inn, the Hojo. Uh, you should come check it out. And I'm sure Jeff will mention it next week when he's up here uh, filling in as well. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, last time I preached, uh, I preached, uh, Drew actually assigned me a topic. He gave me anxiety, which is a great, you know, first sermon topic. And this time around, uh, he didn't give me a topic. He's like, you know, we're taking a break from Luke, so do whatever the Spirit leads you to do, which is a little intimidating because it's, you know, kind of an open-ended uh, assignment. Uh, so this week, I decided to pick uh, something that has to do with circumcision and mutilated flesh, which is, I guess, a, probably not an advisable uh, second attempt at a sermon, but uh, hopefully we can kind of walk through it and uh, make sense of what Paul has to tell us um, in this passage. And truthfully, one of the reasons I chose this passage is it's something that I really struggle to believe. Uh, there's a really good message there for us, and hopefully, by going back to it uh, continually, we'll uh, kind of understand what Paul has to say for us. And what he's trying to, trying to address to us is that the big obstacle uh, for us to experience joy and for us to really apply the gospel to ourselves is that we have a human tendency to depend on ourselves and to trust in our own work and our own merit. And that's kind of what he's combating uh, here in this passage. Um, if you notice in the beginning, he said, you know, it's not a pain for me to write these things to you. That's kind of uh, the motto here at Redeemer. We kind of talk about the same thing every week, the gospel. You know, it's kind of like a joke around dinner tables is that, yeah, we, we preach the same thing every, every Sunday, maybe in the Old Testament, maybe in the New Testament, but it's essentially the same thing. And that's kind of what Paul opens with. He opens with saying, you know, I know you've heard the gospel before, but uh, you keep on forgetting it. So for your benefit, I'm just going to keep reminding you of it. It's really no trouble for me, and it's, it's, for, your, it's for your benefit. And the context of this uh, passage will kind of make more sense. The context is that there's a group of people that are called the Judaizers. These are the dogs, the evildoers that Paul's referring to. And they're trying to impose their beliefs upon the new Christians in Philippi. They're the same people we see in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what they were trying to do, they were a group of Jewish converts, and they were trying to explain to people that in order to truly be a Christian, in order to really know that you're saved, is that you had to follow uh, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And in particular, what they wanted them, them to do was to be circumcised. Even if you're, you know, not a Jew, then you convert to Christianity, they say you have to be circumcised. And uh, that's kind of what Paul's warning about the mutilating of flesh. So just kind of piggyback on that. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, um, circumcision was the sign that God gave his people. It was a good thing. It was a sign that identified them as different. They were God's holy people. They were chosen. And it symbolized, you know, really good things. It symbolized their need of redemption, the cutting away of flesh and blood. It was supposed to be a good thing. But the problem is the Judaizers are claiming to this work as their righteousness. And their error was in saying that someone must do something to be saved. So the problem with circumcision, circumcision rather, it's not that it's wrong. It was a sign God gave to his people. But the problem is that this group of people was trying to hold on to this work, in this case circumcision, for their salvation. It was essentially an add-on to faith. It was something that you did uh, yourself. And that's why Paul put it that they had their confidence in their flesh. They thought that they could get to God by their own efforts. 
So, how does Paul combat this idea of works righteousness? He one-ups them. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about with people that one-up. You know, there's always someone in a group that always knows so-and-so and is a name-dropper or has these cool adventures they always tell you about. Uh, so, for instance, you know, oh, you like French press coffee? Have I told you about my six-month backpacking trip through France? You know, they, they always have a connection and something that's way better than your version of life. And they're normally kind of met with a chorus of eye-rolling and, you know, just, oh, this guy. And that's kind of what Paul does. But he does it, you know, to help them. He does it to um, train them. Paul is basically saying, okay, cool, you're circumcised. Is, is that it? Uh, listen to what I've done. And he kind of begins a list of his, uh, his accomplishments. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law commanded, meaning he was an original Jew. He's not a convert. Uh, not only that, but from, he's from the, tri- the tribe of Benjamin. He's got the right lineage. He's racially pure. This is the line that David ultimately came from. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, like, he, he, is, he is the guy. Uh, in terms of the law, I'm a Pharisee, meaning that he's, uh, he's educated, he's upright, um, he, he knows the law. He does such a good job of not sinning that he says that I, I'm blameless. He even says that he's a persecutor of the church, meaning that he's a political activist. His faith is real because he's kind of let, he's walking the walk in addition to, you know, talking the talk. So, so what is Paul giving us? What is he giving uh, these people? He's giving them a, a resume, you know, and what is a resume? A, a resume is your list of merits. You normally begin with, you know, your name. Which, you know, depending on where you're from and what your name is, it could kind of hold a lot of weight. Uh, you also include, you know, what school you went to, how well you excelled at that institution. Uh, you include, you know, your skills and abilities. You let them know what you can offer this organization that you're trying to be a part of. And another important thing in resume is your connections. It, it pays to know people, you know. So a resume is essentially the case you make to become an insider. Whether it's applying to the right university or trying to get the right job after your studies. The point of a resume is to compile your accomplishments and to offer them to the institution or the organization that you want to be a part of and hope that you've done enough, you know, to merit entrance. And it's a list for the purpose of just getting inside of where you're currently outside. And so to reinforce this idea, let's think of, you know, the, the social, I guess that's a network, LinkedIn. Like their name literally explains this whole process. You know, you sign up, you create your profile, which is your resume, and as time goes on, you build connections, you network, all these, you know, terms people use, and the goal is to get linked in, inside of some better job or better organization or better thing. It's, you know, to become an insider. And if you think about it, we do resume building in all facets of life, you know, especially through friendships and relationships. You know, we create expectations for people to live up to in order to be associated with us. You know, and the inverse is true as well. You know, we kind of hope that we can fit in. We want to talk the right way, wear the right clothes, have the right job. You know, whatever it takes to become an insider. And we have a hard time, you know, if this is our mindset, to celebrate with our friends and their accomplishments because it may mean that they're getting closer to the inside than you are. And that's a scary place to be, but that's really the reality of living with this works righteousness resume-building mentality. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that not only do we resume build and kind of list, list our accomplishments in order to get jobs and friendships, but we also do it on a cosmic level to get God. And we truly, you know, if we, if we think of honest with ourselves, we truly do think that our accomplishments could somehow merit us entrance into, into eternal life. 
And, you know, our list is our way of getting ourselves into the kingdom. You know, we have spiritual resumes, and they all look different, you know, depending on who you are. For some, it's building the perfect family with kids that don't misbehave and always use their manners, or at least, you know, giving that impression that's what your family's like. And for others, it's, you know, climbing the work ladder. You know, the higher I get, the closer I am to the good life and to making it. Or, you know, for some of us, it's even more kind of deceitful. It's religion. It's, you know, I, I go to the right church. I'm always there. You know, I'm, I'm a good person, especially here in the South. You know, the good life is often just being a good guy or a good girl, you know. And you kind of have that mindset is that, you know, I've kept the rules. I'm a good person. I deserve to be in. And these are all, you know, attempts at covering ourselves. It's the same problem Adam and Eve had in the garden. When they ate the fruit and realized they were, they were naked, they just thought they could cover themselves with fig leaves, and God wouldn't notice that they were naked. But we know that that didn't uh, keep God from seeing their nakedness. And surely, you know, God wouldn't, you know, cover them, you know, because of that. So if, if you notice, all the examples I've given, they're not bad things. Work, family, you know, uh, church, in the case of the Judaizers, circumcision. These are good things. You know, circumcision is the, the sign God gave his people. But the problem is that when you elevate something that's a good thing, and you turn it into an ultimate thing, and you orient your life around it, then you're in danger, and you're going to become enslaved to these things. that They're, they're called idols. And one of the best explanations I've ever read of the enslaving nature of idols actually comes from a guy who's not a Christian. He's, a, he's an American author, or a late American author, David Foster Wallace. And in his essay, This is Winter, he describes how the human heart becomes enslaved to things that it worships. Uh, this is a long quote, but uh, please you know, listen to it. It's really, really good. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship intellect, you'll end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And when I read that this, the quote for the first time, it really kind of hit me, because that's so true. You know, our hearts are just prone to take good things and turn them into some sort of ultimate thing that we identify ourselves with. And these things, you know, work, family, beauty, intellect, they were never intended to truly fulfill us. They're good things God gave us to enjoy, but they were never meant to be our identity. At the end of the day, doing these things well, having a great job, having a great family, certainly won't satisfy what God requires of us. You see, what Paul is teaching us is that righteousness is our most fundamental problem not sin. Let me explain that. Paul always knew that sin was wrong, and he was a Pharisee. They added 613 laws you know, to the Ten Commandments just to make sure they didn't do anything bad. But in all that rule-keeping, Paul didn't realize that his good works were also bad. You know, um, that's the transformation that he speaks of when he says, everything I gain, all of my accomplishments, all of my goodness, all of my good deeds, I count as loss. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. You know, every commentary that I looked at that described this passage came to the same conclusion about the word rubbish. 
It's a harsh word choice by Paul, who's an intellectual guy. He's kind of using slang. And it's the same Greek word people use to describe excrement, you know. And the KJV actually translates it as dung. So in 2015, the best church-friendly word we can use is crap. And that's kind of what Paul's explaining is that all of your efforts at doing life on your own, all of your efforts at doing, you know, compiling a resume and handing it to God and saying, accept me, is crap. It's not going to get you in. It's worthless. There is no, nothing positive you can do with it, and it's not going to get you closer to him. So Christianity is not an add-on to your life. And in the case of, you know, as in the case of the Judaizers, you thought you could just add circumcision. You know, Christianity is not simply moral reform. It's not stop skipping church and attend more regularly. It's not stop not praying and pray more. It's not give more money and God's going to bless you and get you into the kingdom. You know, that's religion. That's I'm going to do what it takes to get to God. And it's very easy to kind of mix them up and think that being a good person is what it takes, you know, to get in. That's the lie that I bought into growing up. I really thought that my, you know, my religious, you know, criteria and resume, even though I'm not that good of a guy, would get me in. You know, I had the right religious, you know, resume. I grew up in a Christian home. If the doors were open, I was there, which growing up was like three to five times a week, you know. So thank, thank God for Redeemer. Uh, but... You know, you know, I was a good guy. In my mind, it made sense that I was on God's team. I, I was worth it. I deserved to be in. And this mindset caused me to look down on people that didn't, you know, arrive to my level of spirituality or perceived spirituality. You know, I was puffed up and proud. And, however, I was also fearful, you know, because my worth and my identity are so tied to my spiritual appearance that you're so afraid of anybody else coming in and being better than you. You know, that's a scary place to be because it causes you to look at, in, at friends like they're enemies and rivals. And it's really sick, but it's, you know, the reality of the human heart that's trying to, to justify itself. You know, it's impossible to experience joy, the joy that the psalmist you know, spoke of in our call to worship, and the joy that Paul's expressing and writing about in prison and when he writes this letter, and as, as well, it's impossible to live a life of love uh, towards other people if you're stuck in this self-salvation cycle. So what Paul is trying to say is that we must repent. We must turn away from trusting in our good deeds, our righteousness. We, that means, this means to say, you know, you say to yourself, I now know that when I was being religious, I was trying to be my own savior. I used Jesus as a model and example, but I was my own savior. Uh, I depended on my own resume to stand before God. He owes me nothing. And, you know, Tim Keller, who we quote pretty often here, and someone said you can't really preach a sermon here if you don't quote him, so I'm going to go ahead and quote him. He, he explains this paradigm shift this way. He says, to truly become a Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent of the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all of our other sins and under all of our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. It is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, that you're on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian. So if that's true, if it's true that we must repent of our good deeds that we've been banking on to save us, as well as our bad deeds, and we must repent of the resume building that we've done to appease God, then where do we go from here? You know, if we're unable to do, to do enough good things to get in, where do we turn? If being good is not good enough, 
what do we do? And that's kind of the crisis point that's essential to understanding Christianity. You see, a Christian is someone that realizes that their resume is given to them by God. Our plea is not, look at what I've done, let me in. A Christian is one whose plea is the same as Paul. As Paul lays out in verse 8, I count all my goodness as crap so that I might be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's the same message you read in our assurance of pardon a few, a few moments ago. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's why we call that, that, that section of our sermon, or excuse me, of our, of our liturgy, the assurance of pardon. If, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus' work on your behalf, the verdict's in. You don't have to kind of live in this uncertainty of, am I doing enough good? Am I doing too much bad? What, where do I stand with God? You don't have to live in fear that God wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He doesn't have good days and bad days if you're in Christ. And there's a certain freedom to this, and to this understanding of salvation. You can, you can finally put your guard down. You can stop viewing friends as threats to your own advancement. You can truly experience joy. And I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of us that, you know, sit on pews in the churches, you know, in, you know, in Winter Haven, as well as just, especially just in the, in the South and the Bible Belt, we don't live with that sort of free, that freedom. And I think that's part of us, uh, part of the reason for that is that so many of us are still trying to compile a resume or a righteousness. You know, a lot of people, if I were to ask them, what did Jesus accomplish when he died? I think the main answer would be of Christians is Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And that, that is true. That is 100% true. But on the, cross, on the cross, Jesus took my sin. He took them away from me. However, that's only a portion of what he did. If Jesus simply forgave my sins, then I'm neutral. And I need to do something to get a righteousness. I'm, I'm kind of just empty. And I, I, unfortunately, I think that's kind of the predominant view. Uh, it's, it's this idea of a clean slate that you hear pretty often. It's the, you know, Jesus died on the cross, defeated my sins, he wiped my slate clean. But the problem with this is that means your slate's empty. And that's just an incorrect view. If, if you understand the gospel, it means that your slate is not empty, your slate is full. It is full of the righteousness of God that he has given to you by faith. It's the message Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that he made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, our slate, if we're in Christ, is not empty and not even close to it. It is full. You can't even see any of the black on the way into the blackboard. It's totally full of Christ's righteousness. That's been credited to us by faith. Uh, One of the best examples or illustrations I've ever heard that kind of explains this idea comes from uh, Ray Cortez. He spoke here, I guess, last month in our Gospel in the World seminar. Now, he didn't give this illustration there, so it should fall on fresh ears. Although I don't have the, you know, if you were here for Ray, he kind of is a great storyteller. So I'll try my best to kind of copy him. Uh, so here it is. Uh, if you walk into a bank and you're in debt because you've written 10 checks and they all bounced uh, and you don't have the funds to cover them, you walk into the bank, you're kind of in debt, you're in trouble. You know, there's, there's a, a, a debt you have that you have to pay. And on top of that, there's fees for bouncing checks that you now also have to pay. So it's easy to say that you're in trouble. Now, what if the bank manager came up to you Took you by the side and said, you know what? We're going to wipe away your debt. We're going to zero you out. You know, that's good. That's grace. That's good news. That's unmerited favor. I've done nothing. And they've wiped away my debt. You know, it's not like, it's not like that was just easy to do. Like, the debt, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, per se. You know, like, the, the bank has to take on that debt. 
you know, the shareholders lose money. There's, depending on how large the debt was, you know, there's a cost to it. And, and that, unfortunately, is only part of the gospel. That's kind of the predominant, you know, I'm, Jesus took away my sins mentality. But that's not the full gospel. You know, the full gospel is that when the person walks outside of the bank, what's their financial situation? They have no money. They have no buying power. You're zeroed out. Like, yeah, you, you've been forgiven, but you have no money. And that's not what the gospel tells us is true. What, what the gospel tells us is that the bank manager also says, by the way, we added your name to the ledger of the bank, and now everything the bank owns is yours. All the pieces of land you see, all the houses out there, all the investments, they're yours. And that's the message of the gospel. It's that we have the righteousness of God given to us. And this is so easy to miss. I missed out on it for a long time. But it really is, you know, trans- transformational, at least it was for me. You know, because I know that when I forget this, when I forget that my resume doesn't mean anything, uh, I've, I become critical and harsh. I try to protect my reputation. You know, it's those moments when I forget the implications of the gospel. You know, those moments that I can, when I, when I finally remember the gospel, I can put my guard down. I can stop fending for myself, and I can rest in Jesus' work on my behalf. You know, we don't have to walk through life as those that are trying to tiptoe around God, hoping it doesn't strike you down, which is kind of like the predominant view of God as this grumpy man that wants, that takes delight in ruining our lives. You know, we don't have to fear him because we live underneath his smile, which is what our benediction that we read, you know, every week teaches us. And not only that, but there's, you know, this vertical uh, change between us and God, but there's implications horizontally with how we treat each other. You know, the gospel transforms how we approach one another. Instead of trampling over people in an effort to elevate ourselves, we can join Christ in his sufferings by living lives of love, just, uh, just as Jesus died so that we could live. You know, we can follow his pattern by dying to ourselves so others can live. Since the verdict is in, let me put it this way, we can stop trying to protect ourselves. We're free to lose. We can lose the argument because we no longer have to be right. You can forgive each other because you no longer have to have power. The gospel truly does disarm us. You know, the fight is over. Christ has won for us a salvation that we could never have gained by our works. And in, in a real sense, it's kind of the opposite of a traditional New Year's message, which is, you know, hey, you guys did really bad this year. Next year, let's kind of straighten up and get going. You know, the gospel is that Jesus has worked for us, and that kind of puts me at peace. I can finally experience joy. And probably the you know, living a life of love is hard. And that's why Paul says at the end of this is that I know that the resurrection's coming, that when I die, is lo- loving people is so hard. When I die to myself so that others can live, you have the promise and the joy of knowing that Christ is going to raise you up with him in the heavenly places. You know, your, your work of love is not in vain. And that's why Paul can sit in prison and write this letter to this church and say over and over again, it's a joy for me to tell you these things. It's a joy for me to write these things to you. It's for your good. It doesn't bother me. So I'll close with this. There's um, two hymns that I've really come to enjoy while, you know, the last couple of years. They kind of pop up in books all the time, and they're really pretty fitting. Uh, and since I'm not a long-winded preacher, I can quote both of them because I couldn't pick which one I like better. So I'm going to go, re- go read both of them for you. Uh, the first hymn is for those of us that struggle uh, to stop trying to earn a righteousness. Uh, hear these words. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him alone. Excuse me, stand in him and him alone. 
gloriously complete. And the second verse of, the, of a different hymn says this, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty and a choice. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we love you, and we uh, thank you that we don't have to measure up and work and try to get you to love us. We don't have to jump up and down and say, look at me, look at me, love me, love me. Father, you love us perfectly in Christ, and that had nothing to do with our work. Uh, Father, let this gospel truth of your love and your grace uh, transform us into people that can put down our guard. Father, your, your son became an outsider so that we could come in. Let the truth of that transform us into people that love endlessly, that are okay to lose, uh, that don't have to be right, Father, because we stand on Jesus' merit and Jesus' merit alone. So uh, let these words of, of your gospel uh, transform us today. Your name, amen. As you go, um, know that uh, all you have to have is nothing as you come, uh, and it's faith that's asked of us. Open hands, nothing in our hands, and as you go, this is the promise God goes with you. He goes with you to equip you. He goes with you to walk beside you, among you, in the midst of you, uh, to help you uh, to accomplish the mission that he's uh, given you, wherever that is, as you go from here. So receive these words uh, as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.